Hear now the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Almighty God, would you use your word tonight to persuade us that you really are the center of the universe. That the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, black holes, supernovas, all of creation itself may physically move one way or another. But in the end, all of it lives and moves and has its being in you. Would you do the same thing with our souls and with our lives It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The reason why we do what we do matters. Uh, This is true in all sorts of areas of life. Uh, Think about marriage. Um, I have found, for example, if you bring roses to your wife, she really feels appreciated. She really feels Like this is a sweet gesture and in my experience is greatly appreciated. But if 30 seconds after you give her the roses, you tell her that you may have bought a boat on the way home from work without talking to her first. I think that sort of nullifies the roses. Uh, The reason why you gave those roses was so she wouldn't be mad that you bought a boat. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with buying boats. No problem with anyone buying boats. Um, But you should talk first. You know, you you end up getting in some trouble if you do make that sort of decision without talking together. And, And in the Christian life, one thing that we find in Scripture is that God doesn't just want us to become like Him. But He wants us to become like Him and to live an upright life for the right reasons. Our motivations matter. So just like in marriage, we don't like to be manipulated. God sees through our attempts to manipulate him as well. Why we do what we do in the Christian life matters to God. What it is that drives us, what it is that we're focused on or centered around is of profound importance to God. And in our passage tonight, Peter is calling us as Christians to more than just a life of acknowledging God. He's calling us to a life that's centered around God and happens because of God. And and not out of a sense of needing to manipulate or control him, but because we live our life with our eyes fixed on him. And Peter says, in essence, Because God is always watching us and because God's ears are always open and eager to hear our prayers, we should live every day before the face of God. R.C. Sproul uses this Latin phrase, corum Deo. We should live our lives 
before the face of God. We should be living to please him with him as the spectator and the one that's deeply concerned with our lives and why we live the way we do. Notice that these verses begin with the word finally. That's important because, in a sense, our reading tonight wraps up the section of what we've been looking at before. Because in the previous sections, we've been looking at the household codes. How should we live as families? How should we live as husbands and wives? How should we live as far as slaves and masters go? And Peter tells us in very practical ways what it looks like that God has done something in our homes because of the gospel. And between then and now, Peter told us we should resist our passions, we should submit to the government, we should submit to masters, wives should submit to husbands, husbands should submit to God and live with understanding. And then he uses this word, finally, in verse 8 to tell us he's wrapping this section up now. He's about to move on to a new subject, but not before he makes clear to us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, living in a strange land. Living as strangers, living as sojourners, living as people who are in this place, and yet we know it's not our home. And so he concludes this section by presenting us with a God-centered vision of the Christian life, and he does it under two headings, God-centered love and God-centered labor. So first, Peter pushes Christians toward a God-centered love. Listen to how Peter says it in verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He gives this sort of list of virtues, this list of traits, five traits that Peter says should define the relationships of believers to each other. Just very, very briefly, look at each of these. First, he says we should have unity of mind. This is a call to harmony. It's a a very common command in the New Testament. We see Paul do this at least for the churches that he writes to. He tells them, be unified, be of one mind, be together. Churches are constantly told to have this attitude precisely because it is so tempting for Christians to form divisions and to form parties and to work against one another. He's constantly reminding elders of the importance of their task. He's constantly reminding church members of the importance of submitting to the elders. Uh, He's constantly doing this because disunity is like gravity for us as sinners. Disunity is the direction we are constantly trending towards. And the Bible warns us of this. And the right response to that warning is to purposely and intentionally be unified. Unity is something that happens when we all live with the same purpose and the same intention. So if we're all aimed at the same target, we will experience the unity that Peter and Paul are constantly pressing us toward. Second, he says we should have sympathy. Quite simply, I think you probably instinctively know what sympathy is. Sympathy is having a heart attitude toward our fellow believer where we actually care deeply about their needs and joys and sorrows and challenges. This is something that Paul talks about. One of the clearest places he does this is in Romans 12, 15. And you probably know the verse. It's where he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Isn't it interesting, that connection between sympathy and unity? Very close connection there. This common theme here is sympathy is more than just feeling bad when things go bad. Sympathy means we rejoice when something goes good with someone else. Uh, John Murray says that's one of the hardest commands to keep in all of the Bible. Our temptation when we see things go good for someone is to become jealous instead of joyful at the things that are happening in that person's life. This call to sympathy happens in Peter's letter precisely because he knows that sympathy is much harder to live out than we often like to think. Because as sinners, our default position is to be unsympathetic, to be people who are covetous, who want what other people have. And as Christians, though, because we have unity together, we have skin in the game of each other's lives. When I see things going well for you, it should be like things are going good for me. When you see things going bad for one another, it should be like you yourself are losing. It should be like you yourself are having loss in your life. So that when we win, we win together. Especially in in a material way. Third, he says we should have brotherly love. Peter has already talked about this. He's talked about the need for sincere brotherly love. We should love the brethren. We should have brotherly affection for each other. And that theme comes up in Paul's letters too. In Romans 12, 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. First Timothy 4, 9, he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So in other words, Christ himself has modeled brotherly love in the extreme by laying his life down for us. So there's no way for us to say, well, I can't have brotherly love because God has personally showed us exactly what brotherly love looks like when it's lived out. And this is what happens because we're in the same family now. We're in the same family together. And one thing that I know this about family Uh, is that when we screw up really bad, even when we really, really mess up, we're still family, right? I know this with my own family. Uh, I have tremendous, tremendous differences of of opinion with my family members. Uh, We have had some knockdown, drag out disagreements, especially about worldview issues and things like that. But one thing I know is that even though those things are serious and they're huge, Guess what? We're still family. We're still family. And we still love each other. And that is something that, that can only happen because we're family. If we were just acquaintances, if we were just friends from the street, once you hit a certain point, you say, I'm not investing in this anymore. But you can't do that with family. Or maybe you relate to that. Surely You don't see eye to eye with your family on every issue. A lot of you were meeting together with your families, even today. Maybe there were disagreements that were happening over lunch. You're still family. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't get tired of saying it, that as believers, we are closer than family. You may have had lunch with your physical family today, but if you are in Christ You're closer with other believers than you are with your physical family. 
So we have this sort of closeness with our families in this world, and we can have the same with our spiritual brothers and sisters. And Peter highlights this. Fourth, he says we should have a tender heart. The word Peter uses here is the word for compassion. We should have compassion for each other. Compassion in the New Testament is something that we have toward those who are experiencing pain. Um, Paul uses this in Ephesians 4.32. He says we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Would your brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church, who have had dealings with you, would they describe you as a tender-hearted person? Now, maybe you feel tender-hearted, but are you tender-hearted towards each other? Are you compassionate toward each other? What excuse can we possibly have for being harsh, crude, sharp, and unkind to fellow brothers and sisters when God's been so good to us? He's been so kind to us, even though we deserve harshness. We deserve sharpness and crudeness from him. And yet all he ever gives is good, good, good to us. Finally, Peter says we should have a humble mind. Something to keep in mind is that humility doesn't mean having a low opinion of yourself. Um, Humility means we know that other people are more important than us. That's what humility really is. Um, In other words, in our world of priorities, other people have to be higher on the totem than we are. We should be at the bottom and they should be at the top. That's what humility humility is. Um, The world doesn't do it this way. The world's thinking is, I'm number one. Once I get what's coming to me, everyone else gets theirs. The great model of humility is Jesus. And think about this. Jesus did not have a low opinion of himself. Jesus did not think to himself, boy, I am a dirtbag. Boy, I am a low down sinner. Jesus never thought that because he couldn't lie. He couldn't say that about himself. Jesus knew the truth about himself, and he never once thought to himself, boy, I am a piece of junk. That's not what humility is. Humility is not saying, oh, God, I am a sinner. Humility is saying, I am the least important person in this room. If you think about that, about it, this last thing that Peter mentions here, humility is the prerequisite of all the others that we've talked about. It's hard to have unity if we have an attitude that says, my way or the highway. We're doing it my way or every other way is bad. If we think we're the most important and our opinion is the most important and we're the ones that everyone should listen to or bow down to. If we think that everyone's orbit should move around ours, then we have no right to think that we are humble. That is the definition of pride. And it has no place in the church, according to Peter. One of the most glorious keys to unity is for us as a church, as individuals in the church, to be convinced that other people and their ideas and their opinions are more important than us and our ideas and our opinions. And if we believe this person, whoever it is, is more important than us, we'll be better listeners, we'll be sympathetic to their hurts, we'll rejoice when good things happen to them and all the other things that Peter talks about. Uh, There is a fellow student, and I don't want to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him or make him self-conscious. But when I went to seminary, I knew a student who exemplified this. 
And even now I'm thinking of his face, I'm thinking of his name. It brings joy to me just to think about him. And a lot of times you would talk to this a fellow student. Uh, a lot of times you talk to other students, and when you talk to them, they'd want you to know what was going on with them, what they thought of the world, how their classes were going, how their lives were going, how their search for a church was going, just whatever was going on in their lives. Seminary students are these type A personalities that always want you to know about themselves. And this guy stuck out. This guy that I'm thinking of who just exemplifies humility. And he stuck out because all he ever wanted to do, he wanted to know how I was doing. What was going on in my life? How was my wife? How were my kids? How was my search for a church going? Um, How how was my internship? Uh, How were my grades? How was my walk with the Lord? I mean, it was like I was being interrogated, but it was the kindest interrogation I'd ever gotten in my life. And even though I knew his life at the moment was filled with tremendous discouragement, he always made me feel like I was the center of the world. He made me feel like I was the most important person in the room. And, and I knew, uh, he was, he's, of all the students I knew at school, he was like that. And, and I just think to myself, I want to be that kind of person. And I'm not. I talk about myself far too much. But... Uh, I know it's possible because I've lived around people like that. And I think there's part of us that sees these five things Peter says, and we don't really have any reason to argue. Who wouldn't want to be treated with unity? Who wouldn't want to be treated with sympathy? Who wouldn't want to be treated with love and tenderness and humility? Nobody. Everybody loves to be treated like that. But Peter says the challenge isn't for us to expect it of others. We always expect it of others. That's easy. The real challenge is being that person. Doing those things on our end. And that's where the God-centered aspect of all of these things come in. Because first notice all five of these things that Peter mentions are virtues that we see in Jesus first. Jesus is the ultimate sympathizer. Hebrews tells us Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness because he became one of us. Jesus showed brotherly love for us in his life and death. Jesus was tender hearted. Philippians 2 tells us he lived with humility. He put us first. He set aside all of his priorities. So Jesus is the source. Jesus is the focus of all these things that God expects of us. God is profoundly God-centered, not man-centered in his expectations. And so that's the first way that the God-centeredness of this call shows itself. The second way the God-centeredness of Peter's call here shows itself is because in verses 10 and 12, Peter gives the reasons why I should seek unity, why I should have sympathy, why I should have love, why I should have tenderness, why I should be humble, why I should see others as more important. He's not giving you motivations for other people to treat you right. He's giving you you motivations for action. And his answer is not that Christ has already lived it out. Not only that Christ has already lived it out, but that God is watching and listening to you and me and how we treat each other. And he will bless you if you pursue peace with your brothers and with your sisters. God-centered motivation. 
That's what he says. He calls us to God-centered love. Second, Peter pushes Christians toward living with God-centered labor. Um, The idea here is generosity, and especially this idea of not retaliating when evil is done against us. He says in the first half of verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Think about this. In verse 8, what is he doing? He's focusing on the relationship of believers to each other. But then in verse 9, it takes a turn. In verse 9, Peter says that's how believers are supposed to treat each other. But how should we respond to unbelievers, especially when they mistreat us? What should that, that attitude be? I think I was leaving, I was, right before I left the house, one of my kids asked me, what should we do someday if there's a law that says we can't go worship? And I think to myself, well, that actually feels like sort of Paul's going to answer, or Peter's going to answer that question here. Because if each of us lives in this world for long enough, we're surely going to experience unfair treatment. Um, we do see this certainly already. It seems like Almost a daily occurrence for us to hear a news story in the United States about some Christian-owned business that tries to move into a city, and yet the city tries to drive them out because they disagree with the moral views of the owners. A few months ago, the mayors of Chicago, San Francisco, and Boston just made public statements. They said Chick-fil-A should stay far away from our cities. And almost the same time, the New Yorker ran an article titled Chick-fil-A's Creepy Infiltration of New York City. And it was not a kind article. You could tell with the title. Um, And when Chick-fil-A wanted to move onto the campus of Ryder University in New Jersey, the school declined the contract from the company. And they said specifically, it's because we don't like your beliefs. So on the one hand, it really feels funny that so many conversations about religious liberties end up being centered on chicken sandwiches. Just for some reason, this business in particular has become a touch point for many people who despise historic Christianity. And then we hear stories about cake bakers who refuse to express approval of some lifestyles or participate in some ceremonies or make statements contrary to those that they believe. And so these are common events in the West, and these are going to continue But in the rest of the world, the mistreatment is far more profound and directly obvious. The the University of Notre Dame released a a study recently that found that Christians are the most widely targeted religious community in the entire world, suffering terrible persecution globally. Gordon-Conwell Seminary a few years back estimated that on average 90,000 Christians die each year from global persecution. Most of those are nameless to us. Most of them are faceless to us. Most of them we don't even see. A lot of times they die quiet deaths from starvation because they've been cut off from food. Even if you're being more conservative in doing those numbers, some put the number much lower, around 8,000 Christians annually. Depends on how you're counting. In Nigeria, in the month of March, hundreds of Christians were killed by Muslim oppressors. And it is a great evil that more than 50 Muslims were gunned down in New Zealand in March. It is something Christians should be quick to condemn. It was wicked. It was not virtuous. But it was almost totally ignored that systematic abuse and murder of Christians was happening at the same time in Nigeria. And far more than died in New Zealand. 
Christians are persecuted by other religions. They're also persecuted by states that see Christian belief as a threat, especially in the country of China, for example. I could go on and on. Here's what we need as Christians. We need to learn how to prepare for eventual persecution without fostering a victim complex, without fostering a persecution complex. We need to decide now, not just that we will endure even when trouble comes, but how we're going to respond before the trouble comes. And Peter helps us here. Peter helps us to know how are we going to respond if or when trouble comes our way. And his answer in verse 9 is, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He mentions evils. And he mentions revilings. The first term is broader. Evils is just a broad term for any kind of negative treatment. But the second term is more specific because it's reviling, it's insults, it's name calling, it's negative press. It's the sort of nastiness that I think Christians are getting used to. We're getting used to hearing the term bigot used against people who have believed the same things that the church has believed for 2,000 years. We're, get, we're used, getting used to hearing the word hateful being used against us, even though we don't hate anybody and we should not hate anybody. But the reality is we will be reviled. Peter says that. Expect reviling. Expect to be spoken against. Expect to be treated badly. And yet this is very important to Peter. Christians should not deal with trouble the same way the world deals with trouble. How does the world deal with trouble? Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If they did something to me, I'm going to do something back to them. And it's all fair in love and war. And we see this, we see this worldly way of thinking around us. Um, we see it in politics. Um, In politics, if one party does something that everyone agrees is unfair or especially the other party thinks is unfair, it's not unusual to see the other party use the same low-down, dirty tactics later on. Um, For example, in 2013, Democrats in the Senate were able to get some of the president's appointees through by using what was called the nuclear option. And at the time when the nuclear option got used, Everybody on the Republican side said, this is a low-down, dirty tactic. Nobody should use this. And then what happened? Very recently, Republicans got the president appointees through using the low-down, dirty tactic, using the nuclear option. And the justification that was used was, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. They said, we did, they did this in 2013. We can do this now. Now, I don't mention this because... I want to make a political statement against either party. Everybody is apparently doing this. But I do it to illustrate the way that the world functions is not the way that Christians are told we should deal with one another. And we are not to deal this way with other people who treat us unfairly. This is a worldly way of living. And I guarantee you that will make you stand out. If we refuse to use the same dirty tactics that those who revile us used, that's going to stand out. Because it's so strange, it's so rare, it's so odd, the world can't even think of a reason why we would do that. So think about this. When the gunman entered Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina back in 2015, he killed nine unarmed 
Christian men or, and women, our brothers and sisters in a Bible study. And what made the event so extraordinary was not that this evil young man who doesn't deserve to have his name remembered. What made it extraordinary was not what he did, but was the fact that the victim's families and the members of the church were willing to offer forgiveness to this man and not return evil upon him, even though he had done something so wretched and so vile. They told him they were praying for his soul. They prayed that God would have mercy upon him, even though he had no mercy on their family and on their loved ones. And the secular watching world was stunned. It made headlines everywhere. Irreligious people everywhere lifted their heads and looked. They played the videos of the victims' families and what they were saying. You see, these things stand out because they do not make sense to the watching world. And we are intended as Christians to be oddities. We are intended to be people who don't play the rules the same way the world does. Peter says, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's not enough just to not repay evil. Peter says, go the extra mile. He says, bless them. Bless them. Talk about something that doesn't make sense to the natural mind. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Uh, I don't know if you've, uh, you probably have at some point, you've been cursed, you've been hurt, you've been struck by somebody. When I was in grade school, I had quite a temper. I was just always kind of seething under the surface. And so when I would be on the playground, if some kid pushed me, sometimes I would just go off on them. Now, I would always lose the fight. Don't get me wrong. Uh, (laughs) But I would always blow up at them because I always just had something seething right under the surface. And I could not understand this idea of not returning evil for evil. And yet it was something that the Lord is still teaching me how to do. Think about the soul of the person that's hurting you. Love the soul of that person that's hurting you more than you love yourself. I was amazed by the story of a woman who was in her 90s and a man tried to rob her in a Walmart parking lot. And you can look this up on YouTube, not now, but some other time. You can look this up on YouTube. She actually talks about this. This 90-year-old woman was getting ready to get in her car. She had $10 cash on her, and the man came up to her. He said, I have a gun. Give me all your money, or I'm going to shoot you. And she said, well, sit down with me in the car, and let me talk to you. And she was small enough. She wasn't very intimidating, so he did. And the woman sat there in the car with him for 10 minutes, and she told him how he should be ashamed that he would rob an old woman. He should be ashamed that he would steal from somebody rather than going out and working and earning the money that he needed. And then she ended by telling him that he really needed to turn to Jesus. He needed to start going to church. He needed to turn to the Lord. And then at the very end, she said, I'm going to give you all my money, but it's only $10. This is all I have. And she opened her purse and she gave him the last of her money. And then she told him, you better not spend that on whiskey. Um, It's a really fantastic video to watch. She cared more about the soul of this man than she did about herself. It would have been easier just to give him the money and let him go. But she said, what about this guy's soul? 
There's a famous Bible scholar named Matthew Henry. Maybe you've heard of Matthew Henry, but Matthew Henry was once attacked by thieves and the thieves took his bag and, they, and it had all of his money in it. And then when he got home, he actually wrote about being robbed in his journal. And this is what he said. He said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. He's thinking about his enemy's soul. He's thinking about the soul of the kind of person who would rob him. Do you love your enemies? Do you love your persecutors so much that when you are victimized, you would actually think what is going on in this person's soul that they would be brought to this low of a place to do this wicked of a thing? That they're in a worse place spiritually than you are that they would come to this? Peter says that the way we respond to persecution and threats is meant to have an impact. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we should be pacifists. Right? When your family is in danger, it's appropriate to do anything that you can proportionate to the threat to stop the other person who is endangering other people. So I'm not talking about pacifism here. But, is it poss- but it is possible for, for us to forget that for Jesus and for Peter and for Paul, returning evil for evil is simply not an option. It's not in the cards. When we refuse to play by the watching world's rules, the world is often left speechless because there's just no worldly reason that they can think of why we would be mistreated and still give blessing instead. Why would you do that? The reason why it baffles the world when we refuse to return evil for evil is not just because they don't understand Christianity, but even more, it's because they don't understand Christ. We live as we do. We stand out as oddities as we do, because when we say these things, we're reflecting Jesus. We're reflecting Jesus's priorities. We're reflecting Jesus's methods. We're reflecting Jesus's sacrifice. And when the world sees this, it sounds like weakness to them. To the world, strength means never letting anyone insult you. It means never backing down from a fight. It means always telling people what you think of them, even if it hurts their feelings and even if it insults them. And it always means putting other people in their place. That's the way the world operates. And yet Peter says, because God is the center of the universe, because he is the one who our lives revolve around, Peter says, because as a Christian, you live your life before God, in a sense, we don't get to live our own life at all. This is God's life now. Our life is centered around God. It's not centered around us. And that means we do this his way and not ours. We trust him to right the wrongs. And we don't do that for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, to live for you. And to live the way you call us to takes something supernatural. It takes something special. To live our life as your life now requires something that we don't have in us apart from your word and spirit changing us. And so we ask you, O God, not just to give us unity and not just to give us a Christ-like attitude toward our brothers and sisters, but give us a Christ-like attitude toward us that are not of the family of God 
and who may, in fact, well want to harm us, insult us, steal from us, or otherwise make our lives miserable. Would you give us your heart and your perspective? We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.